Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary. And it really is an honor just to be here this morning and to open the word of God together. We're continuing in our series in Hebrews, but I want to start off just with a question. And this question is, can be answered a couple of different ways, but in the last season of life, or perhaps throughout your life, how have you experienced a disconnect between your hopes and the reality of your life? Have you experienced a disconnect between the hopes of things you've desired, things you've been longing for, and the realities of your life? I'm sure there's plenty of those. I'm sure if we were to sit down, we could all share stories. We'd have plenty of time to share about the stories of the disconnect we felt in our own life of that reality. And what can happen when we experience that disconnect? When the hopes of what life would be and the reality of what life is, when we experience that disconnect, we can become confused frustrated, depressed, demoralized. We can lose heart, and it can be hard for us to continue and to persevere. And in reality, that's a lot of what the Christian life at times can feel like, a disconnect between the hope and the reality of life. This is true for the Hebrews. The Hebrews are an audience who are living through suffering and difficulties in their own life while they have these incredible hopes of the gospel before them. And they might, as an audience, be wondering, how do we hold fast to our hope when the reality of our circumstances are so difficult? When the trials, the difficulties that they are going through are difficult. And so Hebrews is written as a book to encourage them to hold fast to their hope. To not lose heart, to not lose focus, to not look away from the hope they have in Christ, to not get their eyes merely on what's before them, but to look up and to persevere in their faith. It's full of warnings about the danger of falling away and encouragements about holding fast to their hope. And last week, we looked at one of those warning passages, a passage where the author is concerned that the audience might become dull or sluggish in hearing, not hearing the message of Jesus, not responding to the message of Jesus. But the author seems to also give an encouragement, seeing their faith and their love and therefore charges them to continue to persevere. And we see this in verses 11 to 12 at the end of the last section. We see this charge to continue, to continue to move forward, to continue to persevere in the Christian life. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and earnestness of faith, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that we may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the author desires that the audience who is speaking to, that they would be a people who are not sluggish, but they imitate those who have gone before them in the faith and by patience and faith inherit God's promises. And so today we're going to be looking at how do we as Christians persevere in the midst of challenges of life as we look at this text. Because the temptations for this audience to fall away were great. There was suffering that they were enduring. And perhaps even because they were following Jesus, they had entered into more suffering. Like they had gone into the storm by following Jesus. They were enduring discipline. There was the danger just of their own hardened hearts no longer listening to the message of God. And to add on top of all that, likely at this time, these are Jews who have come to accept Jesus as the Messiah and as their savior, and it had completely reformed the way they worshiped. But the temple was likely still standing. 
and the old way of life, the old traditions, the old customs, the old the shadows of Christ that they were accustomed to, there might have been a temptation that they would go back. So the author encourages them, don't go back. Don't harden your hearts. Don't look away. Continue to persevere. And likewise for us, there are plenty of temptations to walk away today, to get dis- disillusioned with the Christian life, to say, this isn't what I thought it would mean to follow Jesus. This is what I thought it would be like to follow Jesus. I thought these things would happen if I started walking with God. The temptations to become disillusioned or distracted by the things going on in our world. The temptations to get divided with one another. They're all before us today. And so we need encouragement to hold fast to the hope that we have in the midst of our trials today. And what we're going to be looking at in this text in verses 13 to 20 is three encouragements that we have to hold fast to our hope. Three encouragements to hold fast to our hope in Christ. The first one we're going to look at is Abraham's example as hope, because he's one of those who, through faith and patience, inherits the promises of God. And and the author is going to put forth Abraham as this example of hope. And after looking at the example of Abraham's hope, we're going to look at the foundation of Abraham's hope and the foundation of our hope as Christians. And then finally, we're going to look at the object, where our, our hope is ultimately focused and where we can look today for hope and encouragement. And so we're going to start with Abraham. Abraham, the example of perseverance and faith, and an example of hope in God's promises. So in Hebrews 6, verse 13 to 15, the author says this. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now God makes promises to Abraham several times in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. This is the beginning, and and God makes several promises to this man, Abraham, about the way that God is going to bless and come alongside Abraham as a blessing. God promises Abraham that he's going to bless him, that he's going to make his name great, and that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And this happens at the very beginning of Scripture. But the passage we're going to be looking at today is Genesis 22. And it's when God takes this man, Abraham, who he has promised this great blessing to, and puts him through perhaps the toughest and most painful test in all of Abraham's life. And so if you have your Bibles, you can actually go ahead and flip there. Genesis is the first uh, book of the Bible, and then we're going to be in the 22nd chapter. So Genesis 22, which is the specific context that the author is drawing for us. A little bit of context as we jump into this. We'll be starting in verse 2 of it, but a little bit of context. When Abraham was 75 years old was when God first came to him and he called him to go out from his homeland. God called him to leave his homeland, to go and to receive another homeland, and he promised this blessing to him. I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. And through your offspring, Abraham, every nation of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham is 75 years old when this happens. But there's a problem, and the problem is that he and his wife Sarah are childless. So they have no child, and yet Abraham is supposed to be someone who brings a blessing through his offspring to the entire world. There's a disconnect between those things. And so it's another 25 years later that Abraham then actually has a son. So he and his wife are old. He's 100 years old, and they finally have Isaac. And it's 
through his offspring, through Isaac, that this blessing is then supposed to come. And that sets up the scene where we enter into today, where Abraham is put forward as an example of faith. Now, Abraham is not a perfect character if you read through his life, but this is a situation where the author is specifically showing us a way in which Abraham does persevere in faith. And so this is Genesis 22.2. God tells this to Abraham, after all this wait, after all this longing, after Isaac is born, and now Isaac has grown up a little bit, God tells him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, if, you, if, you, if you've grown up in the church, maybe you're familiar with this story, and you say, yeah, the story when God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And if that's become white noise, I just want you to think about this reality for a moment. What is God asking him to do? If you haven't grown up in the church, then maybe in your, if you would be hearing this story for the first time, you might be wondering, what is going on? God's asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, your son whom you love. I know, Abraham, that this is the son that you love, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. What is, what is Abraham experiencing in this moment? What sort of turmoil or angst is he feeling in this moment as he is asked to offer up his one and only son? And not only that, not just the son whom he loves, enough to be his child, but the son through whom these blessings and these promises were to come, and who he had waited so long, he and his wife had waited so long, what dissonance is he feeling? This disconnect between the hope that he has and the reality of his life. Dissonance is a term that's used in music, and it's a helpful term as we think about this, because when notes go together, it's called harmony. Those notes go together, they they don't clash, but dissonance is as if someone were to take the keyboard and just smash all the keys at once. It doesn't go together. There's a disharmony. It's like the dumpster in your driveway. There's a disharmony, and it's used to create a tension. And here we have this great tension because we have the bright and beautiful promises of God. The whole world is going to be blessed through your offspring. But we also have the present circumstances of sacrifice your one and only son. Abraham's in dissonance. And the reality is that much of the Christian life is actually dissonance. We have this hope, these bright hopes of the restoration of all of creation through Christ, the restoration of our bodies, the restoration of this world, the restoration of all things, a kingdom of perfect justice, but at the same time, we live in a place of sin and death and grief. There's a sense of dissonance in the Christian life between the hopes and the promises that we have in God God, and the reality of our current situations. So maybe we could ask that question again, then what dissonance are you feeling in your life? What dissonance do you see in your world? Can we see the dissonance? Do, do we see this played out before us? I'm, I'm assuming that the answer would be yes. Whether that's struggling with isolation, uh, struggling with just angst over the season, whether it's struggling with a mental health issue, whether it's looking around at what's happening in your family or in your country or in, in the world, looking at national crises, there's so much dissonance that we can feel as we go throughout life. I just want to say, if you're in a season where you feel like you're being tested, where you're experiencing the dissonance, that's actually a place where hope can grow. It's a place where faith can be tested. It's in the dissonance that faith is tested. And if you're in that situation, this story speaks to your reality. It speaks to your reality as Abraham is going through a test, and he's experiencing the dissonance. 
So then how does Abraham respond? Genesis 22, 6 to 8, this is what it says. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Now, we don't know the exact age of Isaac in this story. Perhaps if you've heard this story before, you picture him as a a tiny child. He's probably not a tiny child because he's old enough at least to carry wood on his back up the mountain. And he's also cognizant enough to look around and say, we have the wood, we have the fire. Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice for this burnt offering? He's cognizant enough to know that something is missing in this story and in this picture. Some people have speculated that he's in his adolescence or early 20s. Some have said perhaps he's 33 as the exact age of Christ. We really don't know, but we know he's old enough to be cognizant, old enough to carry the wood. And he's going up the mountain and he asks, where is the lamb? And Abraham replies to him, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. But what does Abraham mean by this? What is Abraham expecting to happen? Is he expecting that he's not actually going to have to offer up his son? Is this a test where he knows, okay, God's testing me. There's no way I'm actually going to have to do this. I'm not going to have to follow through. I'll go through the motions. I'll go up the mountain, and then I'm I'm going to be out of it. What's going on in his mind? The incredible thing is we actually get an insight into his mind, into this text in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, which is a commentary written about this story. In Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Says that Abraham was in the act of offering up Isaac, which means he's not faking it. He's not just merely going through the motions. He's willing to do this. It raises the question, why would he do that? How, how could he trust God in this situation? What's fascinating is that it says that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. What does Abraham believe about God and his promises? Seems that Abraham believes in the absolute power of God to deliver on his word. Believing that God is a God who even has power over death to raise the dead. And so he endures in the situation. He takes his son Isaac, he binds him on the altar, and he draws the knife. But in Genesis 22:12, God stops him and he says this to him, "Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me." Then God provides a ram in the place of Isaac, and Abraham names this place the Lord will provide. Names the mountain the Lord will provide, seeing the provision of God. 
Now, a common question when reading this story is, what type of God does this? What type of God would ask someone to sacrifice their son? Perhaps some of us might even wonder, even if I take it as true, this story is true, the Bible is true, take for granted the existence of God and the truth of scripture, could I even accept a God like this on a moral level? Could I accept this God? Would I want to? When I was a student at the University of Colorado, I was sitting in a philosophy class, and we were actually discussing this story. And there were different interpretations that were brought up, uh, but one of the interpretations that was brought up, which is held by, historically by a philosopher named Immanuel Kant, is that basically Abraham was wrong in this story to obey God. He should have never done what he was asked to do. He should have realized how insane and irrational this command was. He should have therefore disobeyed and used his rationality as his guide to morality, not some arbitrary command by God. That it was a test not of his obedience, but of his rationality and his adherence to that. But as I heard the story discussed, and as I even think about the story now, I think we can miss the point of this story. Because you see, this is a story about God testing Abraham, and it is a story about the demands that God can put on. He has the freedom to say, sacrifice your son. But what we can miss about this story is that ultimately this is a story about the provision of God as well. You see, Abraham calls the place the Lord will provide. And what we see in this story is that in the place of Isaac, there is a ram that is given as a substitute. And that ram actually points us forward in scripture to the day when on this mountain or a mountain nearby, God would give us the ultimate provision, the ultimate substitute, which is his own son, Jesus Christ. You see, one of the key differences between this story of Abraham and Isaac and between God sending his son Jesus into the world is that when God put his son Jesus to the cross, he actually drew the knife. Jesus was actually crucified. He actually gave up his one and only son whom he loved as a sacrifice for us. Now, that doesn't mean that this story isn't now a hard story or even that that reality is a hard one to understand and to come to grips to. But what we have to see in this story is a picture, a foreshadow, a foretaste of the gospel. And what we see in this story is that we have a God who can test us, but a God who ultimately provides for us at the ultimate cost to himself, which makes him trustworthy. And perhaps the story then is still hard to understand, but what we can see in this story is ultimately the sacrificial love of God and provision for us, which gives us ultimate confidence to trust him. In Christ, knowing that Christ went to the cross, as a willing, as a willing sacrifice for us in love. We have a God who loves us and God the Father loves us and God the Son willingly gives up himself for us. So we have a God who can demand and ask of us, but a God who above that is providing according to our needs. So what does that mean for us? I think it means that we can be encouraged in our trials as we look back. We can look back to Abraham. We can see his perseverance in the darkest, most confusing, disillusioning of days, but we can see through that his perseverance and the way that God ultimately provided for what he needed. 
But we're not just given the example of Abraham's hope. We're also told that we have the same sure foundation of hope that Abraham had. That we have the same foundation of hope in the promise and the oath given to Abraham. Now, after God's test of Abraham, God confirms his promises to Abraham that through your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He confirms his promise to Abraham with an oath. During this time, oaths would be something that someone would swear by the name of a God. And so someone might say, by the name of this God, I promise or I swear that what I'm about to say is true. It's a way of confirming your word so that someone can have sureness that what you're saying is actually going to come to pass. And after God's test of Abraham, he confirms his promise to him with an oath. Just as 22, 16 to 18 says this, God speaks to Abraham and says, By myself have I sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So God assures him, What I've promised you, Abraham, what I've said to you, what I've spoken to you, all that I said will come to pass. All that I said will come to pass, and I swear by myself. Now, we always swear, if you swear an oath, by something higher than yourself. I don't know how many of you sworn an oath, perhaps for legal reasons you've had to do that before. I think I've done it once in my life for a notarized document. But when we swear an oath, we swear by something higher than ourselves. You can imagine the classic courtroom scene where someone has a hand on the scripture and they swear by the word of God. Or someone would say, I swear by my mother's grave. I don't know why we do that and I wouldn't encourage that one. (laughs) But I swear by something that brings a sense of reverence, a sense of fear. Someone might say in Jesus' time, I swear by the throne of God. Or I swear by God, we could say. We wouldn't swear by a broken down Corolla in the parking lot or anything that's less than us. We wouldn't look at some piece of junk and swear by it. It's always something higher. But this creates an issue. If God's going to swear an oath, who's God going to swear an oath to? If he swears an oath to someone or something, then that thing is higher than him. So this is why the author says in Hebrews 6.13 that when God made a promise, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by himself. He swore by himself. He swears by our own, his own name as the foundation of reality. The foundation of our hope is in God himself. Now, this is important because in our world, we're constantly searching for truth. We want to know what is true, who can we trust, and how can we know it's true? We're constantly searching for truth. And we don't really trust each other because we know that people lie all the time. It's just commonplace. It's part of our world to tease through lies and truth. If someone tells you something unexpected or surprising or a piece of news, you might ask the question, where did you hear that? You want to know if their source is credible. And if they send you some sketchy article they found on Facebook, then you say, that's not credible. That's not reliable. That's not truth. You need a better foundation. 
If you're really diligent, you might trace something back to the source to see if the source is reliable. But here's the thing. If God would cite his sources, he would add nothing to his word. God doesn't cite his sources. He he cites himself as his source because he is the ultimate foundation of reality. And if he would appeal to anything or anyone else less than himself, he would only weaken our confidence. What he's trying to do through this text is to get our eyes up. Get our eyes up to the ultimate confidence, which is in God himself. Because the ultimate source of reality is the ultimate source of confidence for us as Christians. In Exodus 3.14, when God reveals himself to Moses years down the road from Abraham, he reveals himself as I am who I am. I am who I am. He's self-defining. I am who I am. I merely am who I am. You cannot define me by anything outside of me. I have always been. I will always be. He, he comes as a flaming fire that doesn't concern, consume the bush because he's not sufficient on the bush for fuel. He simply exists. He is his own source of reality. He is self-sustaining. He needs no one outside of himself. He's self-authenticating. I mean, he swears and he affirms the truth and the reality of himself and his word by himself because there's no higher place that he can go. And so he's trying to lift our eyes up to ultimate reality for ultimate confidence. Now, perhaps as you hear that, you, you may still feel some sort of a disconnect. You may still feel like you have need and a, a, a desire for further confirmation, further strengthening of your faith, because that can still be hard to understand and wrap your mind around. But what would be helpful to understand here is that this is revealing to us the fact that God swears an oath in the first place, that he is gracious and merciful to our need for assurance. Because you have to ask the question, why would God swear an oath in the first place? He's God. He's not going to add anything to his word by swearing an oath. He's just confirming what he's already said. And further, his, his word's not going to change. Verse 18 tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. So nothing has changed about God's word. His promises are still going to come true. They, he's not having his arm twisted to make sure that that comes true. Nothing's added to his word. Nothing's changed. It's merely confirmed, but it was already going to pass. And all that to say, God didn't swear an oath for himself. He didn't swear an oath for himself. He swore an oath for us, for our encouragement, for our assurance, because we need confirmation. He knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. He knows that he is the God who dwells in the heavens, and yet we are people who walk on the ground and need encouragement. In verses 16 to 17 of Hebrews 6, it says this, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So we, when we have disputes, we need an oath. We need someone to swear something because we can't trust each other. We're always looking for what's reliable. What does God do then when he wants to ensure us of our hope of his promises? Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. 
He guaranteed it with an oath. Because this is the way that we operate and God is committed to our hope being strengthened. God guarantees his promises, saying I swear by myself with an oath. This is God. This is the way that God is. God is a God who is gracious and merciful to us in our need for assurance, in our need for perseverance. He's the type of God, and this is so much like God throughout all of scripture, who will stoop down to our needs, who will stoop down to our weakness to strengthen us because he's committed to strengthening his people. If you read at the end of Hebrews 4, it talks about Jesus as our high priest, who we can come to in a time of need and find mercy and grace. This is the type of God we serve, a God who is merciful and gracious. And so if you're struggling with belief, if you're struggling with doubt, you can come to God and say, I believe God, but help me with my unbelief. Help me be strengthened in my faith. We have a God who desires to strengthen us for our perseverance. So he guarantees his promise with an oath. And verse 18 says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So there's two things which God is encouraging us, people who have fled for refuge, like Abraham, living not in our home, but longing for a better home. There's two things that God guarantees and assures us with. And those two things mentioned here are most likely the promise given to Abraham and the oath by which God confirms his promise. Or a way you could say it is God's word and God's word about his word. The author is trying to get our eyes and our minds up on God for our confidence and on his promises and on his word and the oath he swears. But notice also how we're described as Christians. We who have fled for refuge. We who have fled for refuge. We're described like refugees. Longing, desiring a better home. We can look around in our world and we see crises unfolding before our eyes. Just this last week, we had a picture up uh, on the screen of the Afghan refugees, about 600 in a plane who are fleeing for safety. And there's a rightful response we have of that, of this sympathy and this, oh man, can you imagine not having your home anymore? Fleeing for refuge. There's a right response we have to that. And that's why as church, we're seeking to help and come alongside those who are fleeing for refuge. But do we also understand that that is our spiritual identity in this world? That if you are in Christ, you are one fleeing for refuge. You are forsaking the hope of this life in this world being your ultimate hope and reality. We hope for Christ's restoration of all things. We hope for his perfect kingdom. We hope for his restoration of our lives in this world and to make all things new. We flee for refuge by faith in God. And God assures us, I will bless you. I will bless you. By myself have I sworn. So we find encouragement as we first look to the example of Abraham, but then we, as we also look to the foundation that Abraham had for his hope, which is in God himself. But we have even more reason for encouragement. And the final reason we have for encouragement is that we have Christ, the object of our hope. 
before us in the very presence of God. This is where this passage ends with us. Verses 19 to 20 say this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our hope, the object of our hope, is Christ. In this passage just before, in Hebrews 5, the author was talking, beginning to talk about Christ the high priest, but then he took a diversion and said, about this we have a lot to say, but it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. And the author went away into this warning, and now the author is bringing us back to the subject of Christ the high priest, which is what we'll be talking about for the next several weeks as we go on through Hebrews. But if you're wondering, how did we get here from talking about Abraham and the promise and the oath to now talking about Christ, the object of our hope, it'd be helpful to understand that Christ was the ultimate object of Abraham's hope. In John 8, 56, Jesus says this about Abraham. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus says, Abraham looked forward forward. He longed, he desired to see my day. He looked forward to it and he was glad. The blessing that was given to Abraham through your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed comes through Isaac. But the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is the offspring of Abraham far down the road, Jesus Christ who comes as a savior of the whole world, as a blessing for the whole world. He's the reason we're here today that we've gathered in North America as Christians because this blessing has come to all the world. And we have this as the object of our hope before us, not just an idea, not just a thought, but Jesus Christ actually in the very presence of God. It used to be that the high priests who represented the people would go once a year into the very most intimate dwelling place of God, into an earthly holy of holies. But they would enter once a year and then they would leave. But Christ entered once and for all into the true heavenly holy of holies, the very dwelling place of God, and he now lives there. And the confidence that we are given in this passage is that Christ is like our anchor. He is in the very presence, the very dwelling place of God. He is in our true eternal home with God in his presence, in glory. And he assures us that because he is there, we will be there. Someone has put it this way, that we are like this ship at sea and we get beaten by the waves, we get beaten by the storm. There's the trials and the tests and the difficulties of life. But in the midst of that, as we're thrown about, our anchor holds fast. And the encouragement we are given here is that we have Christ, the forerunner, the one who has run before us into our eternal hope and who now lives there to secure our hope to assure us both of the present reality of our hope in God and our existence in his presence and to assure us of the future hope that we have in being with God in his very presence when he makes all things new and we live with him. And that gives us encouragement because we live in the dissonance. We live in the chaos and the disorder and the suffering and the hardship and the tests of this life. 
but we have the hope before us. We have Christ as our anchor for our soul. And it's not just an idea or a thought, but it's a person, Jesus who now lives to secure us in the presence of God. There's a hymn called Before the Throne of God Above, which is a classic by Charity Bancroft. And we're just gonna read the last few verses of it because it's such a great hymn that does the very thing we're talking about today, which sets our eyes on Jesus. Sets our eyes on Jesus as our high priest in the presence of God. And this is what it says. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we do have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We thank you that Jesus has gone into our eternal hope, into our eternal glory. We thank you that he is our hope before us. Lord, I pray today in the difficulties that each person is experiencing, in the trials and the tests, uh, in the tests of hardened hearts, the temptations to harden our hearts and to harden our minds and harden ourselves towards your word, I pray that you would bring a softening of hearts. Pray for the difficulties and the grief uh, that we're experiencing. I pray that you would bring an encouragement there as well, Lord. And pray ultimately you would set our eyes where they belong, which is on you. Pray that you would lift our eyes up, Lord, that we would look beyond the present circumstances of our life and we would look to that which is unchangeable, to you as the great I am and to Christ our high priest in the very presence of God. Pray that you would strengthen our brothers and sisters at Thornton and the Boulder campus this morning and your church across this town, this country, and the world. Lord, we long for you. We love you. Pray that you would strengthen us and help us to continue to persevere. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.